Luke chapter 8, verse 26, this is what God's word says. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, as we have opened your word, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see the gospel truth that is here to see how much Jesus has done for sinners like us and incline our hearts to your testimonies and by your spirit bring us to see you rightly in all of the wonder of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout the book of Proverbs, we are repeatedly instructed that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. That is to say, fearing God is the essence of knowing God and having any measure of relationship with Him. And this is why Scripture so often portrays faithful believers as God-fearing men and women. And as we saw last week in the previous passage of Jesus calming the storm, we were reminded that Christ alone is worthy of our fear and trust because He is more majestic and mighty than even the most uncontrollable forces of nature. And so... Fearing God is knowing God. They are essentially one and the same. However, we need to be careful to distinguish between an ungodly fear of God and a godly fear of God. Now notice that both have God as the rightful object of fear. But it is possible for someone to sincerely, genuinely fear God 
but be far from Him and not know Him. Because one can fear God in such a way where rather than leading them to draw near to God, they instead draw back further away from God. Why? Because a true holy fear is compelled by love and worship, being captivated by the weight of His glory. It's the exhilarating fear that comes from standing on the precipice of the Grand Canyon and beholding its, its majesty. You, you tremble in awe, especially if you have a fear of heights like I do. But it makes you also want to behold its glory more. And so you find yourself inching a little bit closer to the edge, if you so dare, to behold its splendor. That's true fear. But you can fear God in a way where instead of that, all you feel is, a, is terror and dread afraid of being punished and so it is devoid of love for God you're not attracted to him you're actually repulsed by him it makes you want to resist him and and want to get away from him that is unholy fear and we can see this contrast very clearly in the account of Jesus healing this demon possessed man beginning first with how demons fear Jesus with the real fear And yet it is the most ungodly fear. Now, as you recall from last week, Jesus had embarked uh, on a trip to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, during which, during that trip, a a raging storm had erupted and the Lord silenced it. And so verse 26 then picks up right where we left off to tell us that after that incident with the storm, Jesus and his disciples uh, eventually made it to the other side, the southern end of that large lake, which was called the country of the Gerasenes, which is probably a Gentile region. And as soon as he stepped onto the shore, verse 27 says that there met him a man from the city who had demons. Now notice the plural there. And this man was tormented by demonic forces, but it wasn't just external attacks from the outside, but rather, as the text says, he had demons. It was as though he internally possessed them because, well, they had possessed him. They seized control of the man. And the result was this shell of a man in this most deplorable condition as he had lost control of even his own personhood. Verse 27, For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Notice that there was no sense of personal dignity. He was living in shameful nakedness and no no sense of rest or family or societal belonging, but instead chaotically, restlessly roaming around in the cemetery of all places. And Mark's account in chapter 5 of his gospel tells us that night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. You see that the self-harm and the self-mutilation that comes about. This is what the devil and his demonic agents do when a helpless soul entrusts himself into their wicked hands. It results in a horrific carnage. And so the description of this man's state of mind and his state of being is an extreme visible manifestation of an invisible demonic infiltration 
into a person. Now, I feel the need to clarify for some of you who may be a little spooked, uh, a little too early for Halloween, I guess. Demonic possession is possible and indeed occurs today. However, this kind of domination and inhabitation is impossible for, for all who are in Christ. If you are born again, if you have trusted in Christ by faith, demons cannot possess you because Christ possesses you and his spirit permanently dwells within you. And the reason demon possession happens at all, whether in the New Testament time or whether today, the reason it happens at all for for a non-believer is not because of some arbitrary lottery pick and you're just Someone just walking down, taking a stroll in the park, and oh, all of a sudden a demon just happens to possess them. Well, how unlucky is that individual? But this extreme demonic control happens when an unbeliever foolishly and willingly welcomes demonic beings into his mind, effectively handing over the keys of his psyche to the devil. Hence, 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us to be sober-minded because the devil seeks someone to devour. And so to resist the devil, you need to guard your mind, which means that to welcome the devil, you let your mind loose, open, embracing him. And so such unrestrained demonic influence to the point of control comes about when the mind is willingly opened to all kinds of evil things, satanic cult practices, uh, just immersed in, in very dark behavior, oftentimes today accompanied by psychedelic drugs. And so evil presence is actively welcomed into the mind as it has lost all inhibition. Now, some of you might think this is a little far-fetched, but I can assure you that even in this country, even in our vicinity, There is a growing popularity and interest in the occult and in dark mysticism. You see all those people fancying themselves with Ouija boards and all kinds of mystical things, and they don't know what they're playing with. They're playing with hellfire. And so as a result, there are many people being willingly imprisoned by demonic forces because of a fascination with dark spirituality that is devoid of the Holy Spirit who brings about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the wonderful attributes of God who is holy and good. You know, not everything spiritual is from the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? And this is what's so concerning about the hyper-charismatic movement, isn't it? You know, with all their senseless, chaotic behavior, their eccentric, bizarre things, barking like dogs, woof, woof. I mean, my goodness. And, you know, some of those people, they, they insist, no, I promise you, what's happening? This is truly spiritual. Oh, I believe you. I fully agree that it's spiritual. But the question is, of what spirit? Because that is not the Holy Spirit. Because God is a God of peace and not confusion, of self-control, not bizarre animal-like behavior. Not everything spiritual is from the Holy Spirit. And so when an evil spirit is given the reins over a man's constitution and state of mind, 
There is chaos. And sometimes even extraordinary violence and strength. Verse 29, For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And this man displayed a frightening supernatural strength as a result of demonic forces taking over his mind and body. And the residents tried to keep this deranged man restrained for both their safety and his own safety, but, but he would snap the chains like, like a twig. He couldn't be controlled, not only by others, but couldn't even be controlled by his own self. He had lost all self-control as tremendous demonic power had overtaken his personhood. And so no one dared to come close to this man who was now an uncontrollable force of destructive darkness. As Matthew's account tells us that he was so fierce that no one could pass by that way. So the entire garrison region feared this man who had tragically become the manifestation of satanic presence. Now listen, wouldn't you be afraid if such a man lived in your, in your neighborhood? And even the cops couldn't restrain him with handcuffs? I'd be afraid of this visible presence of demons and this uncontrollable power of evil. But look at what happens as soon as Jesus steps onto the shore. The man under possession meets Jesus, and in verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. This monstrous and terrifying embodiment of darkness cowers at the presence of Jesus. Notice how the man not only cries out, but he actually falls down before Jesus, kneeling before the Son of God. And the demons in the man are are, are literally begging Jesus as beggars, please leave us alone, do not torment me. And what's particularly astounding is that in verse 30, Jesus asks the man his name and he replies, while under demonic influence, my name is Legion. Why? Because many demons had entered into him. And so so the reason this man was so violently tormented was because it was not just one, but many. Now, how many is the question? Well, we don't know exactly, but the word Legion is telling because it was a military term in Latin, used by the Roman Empire under Augustus to refer to a band of about 6,000 soldiers. And judging by how many pigs were later possessed and drowned into the sea, which Mark tells us was 2,000 pigs, we can reasonably guess that this wretched man had permitted thousands of demons to enter into him as he handed over the reins of self-control. And so look, look at this showdown that's pictured here. One Jesus against an army, a a, a military band of thousands of ravaging demons. But there's not even a battle started. Instead, as soon as Jesus steps foot into the battleground, the whole legion immediately surrenders on their knees in fear. In verse 31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And the abyss being the dungeon of deep darkness where Satan and his minions are destined to be confined 
and judgment. And they are pleading with Jesus, not even to refrain from throwing them there, but to refrain from commanding them to go there. Because why? They know they are totally subject to the mere will of Christ. This is the power and majesty of Jesus. And so you see, the devil and his colleagues, they fear Christ. They are terrified of him. This is why James 2.19 says, Oh, you believe in God? Well, good for you. So do the demons. And in fact, they believe in God more than you do because they shudder. They tremble. All throughout the gospel accounts, they demonstrate a genuine fear of Jesus, trembling before God incarnate. They even fall down before Him. They prostrate themselves in the presence of Jesus. But never in worship and obedience. Instead, despite their fear, they hate God. They hate everything about Him. Why do you think that we see such intense demonic activity during Jesus' incarnation on earth? Have you thought about that? Because listen, demons were around in the Old Testament. But in the Gospels, during Jesus' time on earth, I mean, there is such a heavy concentration to the point where they are entering into people and seizing control. And it's not just a one-off thing. This is happening all the time. Why? All of a sudden. Well, it's because the devil has such a vicious hatred of God that when he saw the glory of God taking on human flesh, he was enraged. Because in the very incarnation of our Lord, don't we see such beauty of God's redemption, His grace for sinners, His love for a fallen humanity that should be discarded? And that's the climax of the divine glory that is revealed in the person of Christ. God and man reconciled in one person. True divine nature and true human nature. And that, seeing that, infuriated the devil so much that in his evil, he said, oh yeah? You're going to become one with human nature and and redeem them? And I'm going to do my part and sabotaging human nature. And I will show you how ugly I can make them, how depraved and ruined they can be. And so the devil made it his mission to try to mimic Jesus' incarnation by sending his demons to terrorize people and invade into, into vulnerable minds and souls so as to seize control over their personhood and torture them in self-destructive chaos. This is how much the devil hates God. And by extension, the devil hates man. Do you realize that Satan absolutely loathes you? He hates your guts. Now you might be thinking, why? What did I ever do to him? In fact, many of us spend each day hardly even thinking about the, the devil's presence and existence. Why does the devil hate you so much? It's because you are made in God's image. And for that, he hates you. When the devil looks at human beings, he can't help but see their creator. 
the God who made them. And knowing that he can't destroy God, he focuses his vile hatred on those made in his image. And this is why in John chapter 8, Jesus describes the devil as being a murderer from the beginning, a bloodthirsty destroyer of humanity. Hence, Jesus said in John 10.10, the devil and his agents operate off of this MO to steal, kill, and destroy. What do you think Satan is doing right now? With all the ideology, all of the stuff, that the lies that is being shoved down the throats, especially of the young ones, it's to kill them. It's to destroy them. It's to rob them of dignity. And, and, and living out the joy of humanity, even under God's common grace. Why do you think more than ever, suicide rates have skyrocketed? Depression has skyrocketed. It is because this world is being operated off of the lies of Satan meant to destroy. All the promise of good and love and happiness it is destroying people from within to steal, kill, and destroy. And this is exactly what we see here in this man's pitiful condition. Again, we saw earlier that the man's condition was to be stripped of dignity and self-worth. I mean, quite literally, as he walked around in shameful nakedness. But notice also that under the, the demonic reign of terror, where do we find this man spending all his time? Where does he hang around? It's not at home. It's not in a nice botanical garden. But it's hanging around in the cemetery. He gravitates toward where death is rampant because that is what the devil does. He kills, brings about death. Look, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent didn't tempt Adam and Eve just to pull a nice big April April Fool's prank. Oh, haha, gotcha. That's actually not what God said. I was, it was a pop quiz and you failed. No, it was designed insidiously to kill them, to bring about death. It was a calculated deception with the intent to drag them down to the eternal cemetery of hell. He is a murderer, brings death and chaos. And this helps us make sense of this very strange request on the part of the demons. Verse 32 when, when they saw a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside and they asked Jesus to, to please don't send us into the abyss, but let, let us enter into the, the pigs. And so Jesus gave them the permission of what, what happened. The pigs went crazy and they went, drowned themselves into the lake. Now this is a curious set of verses to be sure. There are many questions we might have. Why the pigs? Can animals be possessed? I mean, why did the pigs rush down the lake? Why did Jesus permit this? Many of these, these things we don't know. We, we can spend all day speculating, but in the end, we are not given every explanation to our curiosity. And rather than speculating on what is not said, we need to focus our attention on what is clearly revealed. That is, that as soon as the demons entered into the pigs, what happened? Death. And that's the point. That wherever the devil and his agents are found, it always results in senseless chaos, mindless terror, and self-destruction. 
Because again, this is the devil's MO. His objective is to steal, kill, and destroy God's good and beautiful creation. The paragon of which is humanity. But all this to say, the point is this. As you can see, the devil hates God. And yet he genuinely fears God. This legion of demons shows us that it is possible to fear God, but be utterly devoid of love for Him. Because you can fear His power and authority. You can fear what He can do to you, but your heart has no desire to submit to Him in trust and obedience. Although the demons see God, and perhaps many times better than we see God, the devil has better theology than us, believe it or not. But none of that leads him to doxology, to worship God. They do not see him rightly. The demons do not see the beauty of his glory, the loveliness of the character of God. You see, you can know who God is. You can know a lot of things about God. But you can end up not knowing God because you don't know what's so wonderful about Him, so trustworthy, so praiseworthy. This is the true fear of God, one that leads to submission to His loving and perfect authority. But sadly, as we continue to the next paragraph, we see that it wasn't only the demons who demonstrated this ungodly, unholy fear, but it was also the garrison residents who had witnessed Jesus' supernatural power of deliverance, they responded in faithless, godless fear. Verse 34, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people went out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, fully healed, miraculously, powerfully, supernaturally, and they were afraid. Now, an immediate sensation of fear is not improper here. After all, the disciples reacted in the same way when Jesus calmed the storm, back in verse 25. And so, how could you not be in awe and tremble at the realization that this man, Jesus, is the very incarnation of the divine power of God? Uh, Who else can command demons to depart as they shudder in fear before him? But the question is, in that fear, how did they respond to Jesus? And what did their response show about the nature of their fear? Well, verse 36, they, they were told what had happened. And then all the people asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. And so Jesus got into the boat and returned. They asked Jesus to leave. Now why would they do that? Well, it's possible that they were so worldly that they were scared of further economic ramifications given what they heard about how many pigs were lost. Again, Mark tells us that it was around 2,000 pigs, which, I mean, at the time, look, that was currency, okay? Paper money was nothing. It It was about the real hard assets, you know, the baking factory. And that was a catastrophic loss for business. And so it's possible that was a reason. But 
What we do know is that the primary reason we are told is that they were seized with a great fear. They were distressed. They were afflicted with that fear. In other words, their, their fear of Jesus was such that they were afraid of Jesus. Filled with dread in such a way where they wanted to retreat from him. Or rather, for him to retreat from them. They were not drawn to him in worship. Even though they believed the reports. I mean, it was undeniable. They saw the deranged man made whole. And so they really believed that Jesus had done such a thing. And that he evidently had the power to do such a thing. But the problem is. They saw only the sheer power of Christ and they were afraid of him because they did not see the grace of his presence. You see, it is very possible to fear God only as almighty judge or domineering ruler and fully believe this to be true, but end up resisting him out of fear because you don't see the magnificent grace of God in the gospel and what a lovely father God is as he reveals himself to us in his son. You can fear God in such a way where you are just afraid of him all the time and as such, any semblance of obedience in your life is at best performed under duress. That's legalism. That's no different than being a Pharisee. Being devoid of first receiving love from him and thereby responding in love for him. And so it was for the Gerasenes in how they feared Jesus. Because while they saw the overwhelming power of Jesus, they missed the person of Jesus and the wondrous love that he is. And so in their spiritual blindness, they wanted God to go away from them out of fearful terror. And how many souls have been ruined under churches and ministries where the fear of God is constantly instilled in them, but that to the tragic exclusion of the depths of His love and grace. And so they're just scared into a pretense of obedience, trying so hard to please God out of fear of judgment. And this whole premise is just simply missing the gospel of the freeness of God's love in Christ. That's solely on the basis of what Christ has done for sinners. They are adopted into God's family. And they become his children. First and foremost, children to the unchanging delight of their heavenly father. The late J.I. Packer once wrote this. If you want to judge how well a man understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. You know, many years ago I read this quote and I didn't really understand what he was talking about. And I realized maybe I didn't understand Christianity very well at all, as he said. And as I grew to understand the depths of God's grace and the sufficiency of it, not just in getting us saved, but in keeping us in his delight and love 
Then I begin to understand, ah, this makes perfect sense, what J.I. Packer said. And I wonder how many of us today are simply afraid of God. Rather than relating to Him in the intensity of love and deepest reverence as a child to a father. This is holy fear which draws one closer to God, being allured to Jesus because you see the the excellency of Christ and how worthy He is of your whole heart. It is to be compelled by love and, and it bears the fruit of increasing love. And although here... The, the Gerasenes had told Jesus to leave out of unholy fear. There was one man this day who feared Jesus rightly. And it was the one who had been touched by the tremendous love of Christ who saved him from his unsavable condition. Before Jesus got into the boat to return, after being rejected by the people, It says in verse 38 that the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Look, if there was ever a man who feared the power and authority that Jesus showed that day, it was this man. Because he himself was tormented by the overwhelming forces of darkness, and he personally witnessed and experienced Jesus' superior and supreme power. And if there was anyone there who, who understood just how holy was the light of the world, well, it was this man whose deep inner darkness was banished by coming into contact with this incarnation of absolutely holy light. But how did he approach Jesus afterwards? He begged that he might be able to go with Jesus and stay in his immediate presence. The demons begged for Jesus to leave them alone. The garrisons begged for Jesus to leave their region. But this man begged to come even closer to Jesus, to spend the rest of his days with him. Now, Jesus wasn't rejecting him when he told him to go back home, but he was commissioning him to stay home to preach to those very hard-hearted garrisons that he was surrounded by. It was actually an act of grace for those unbelieving garrisons. But look at the stark contrast in response. Why the difference? It's because this man experienced the saving grace of Christ. And so he saw the true person of Jesus. He saw the true God worthy of his fear and love and trust. He saw the Jesus who had delivered him from that which no one could and no one even dared to come close to him. He saw the Jesus who had such pity and love for him that that he had effectively sailed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee just to save this man. Did you notice that? Back in verse 22 As Jesus sets out, before the the storm comes on the sea, he says, let's go to the other side. And then in verse 26, they came to the other side after the whole ordeal with the storm. And it says in verse 27, as soon as he stepped out onto the shore, there met him this man. And after healing him, then the people witnessing it said, leave. And so he got in the boat and he left. So what happened? He went all the way down just to heal this man. 
It was worth the trip to save him from his spiritual darkness. And here was this man who who saw the Jesus who considered his depraved soul unsalvageable, good for nothing, hopelessly lost. Jesus saw his soul as of more value than 2,000 pigs. Again, an astronomical monetary value. But how precious did Jesus find his soul that the loss of those thousands was not to be compared with his deliverance from the forces of darkness. And so just as Jesus instructed him, he went proclaiming how much Jesus had done for him. I love that phrasing. It expresses such thankfulness and love to Christ. How often do we think like this as believers? Not how much we need to do for Jesus, but how much He has done for us. What grace and mercy He has shown us, who although on the outside we we might seem put together and and fairly decent, and God knows the, the darkness of our hearts, that really, apart from His saving grace, we are no less depraved than this demoniac. And so in such thankfulness and love, therefore that we would serve him and to tell the world about him. That's what this man did. And that is the true fear of God, compelled by love for God and therefore draws us toward him. And this only comes by encountering the gracious love of God in the gospel. You know, some of you know of Martin Luther whom God used to ignite the Reformation in the 16th century and reclaim the purity of the gospel from Roman Catholicism. But not many of you may know the interesting dynamics of his conversion. Because Luther wasn't converted from paganism to Christianity. God didn't save him from a life of gross immorality or atheistic unbelief. Rather, God saved Luther from what was essentially his unholy fear of God. You see, even before Luther was born again, he knew who God was. Luther studied Christ because he was on his way to become a Roman Catholic monk. He was a theologian and an excellent one. In fact, there was no one who cared more about God all before his new birth. God consumed his every day, his his thoughts, day and night. Luther was obsessed with understanding this God and figuring out how to please this God. His whole life was about trying to meet the requirements of God's law. And he worked harder than anyone. Just why later in his life, Luther would say, if ever a monk got into heaven through monkery. It was I. So listen, Luther believed that God was holy. Luther feared God tremendously. He believed in the depravity of man, in the nature of sin, in the bondage of sin. But all of that just led him to fear God because he had no answer on what to do with that. And all of his fear of God was unholy, unregenerate fear because he saw God as only the righteous judge. 
He is the righteous judge, but Luther saw God as only the righteous judge, whose threat of punishment Luther feared, and for which he hated God. You know, later in his life, Luther would reflect in hindsight and write, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. There was a story of how he would always see this picture of Christ in the cathedral with, with the sword coming out of his mouth, as we see in Revelation. And every time he would look at it, he would be angry at Jesus. You know why? He said, why can I never be good enough for you? I know that that sword is aimed at me. You see, he had not yet understood the love of God in Jesus Christ who took on the punishment of sin to give us the gift of His righteousness which we can never earn. See, Luther, in his sensitive conscience, he could never presume that the Holy God could love a wretched sinner like him. And ironically, that led him to a life of the greatest disobedience because he failed to obey the greatest commandment to love the Lord God with all of his heart. And said he hated God with all his heart. Because he saw nothing lovely about him, but only dreadful and horrifying. But by the grace of God, as he was studying the book of Romans, he came to understand the true gospel and that the righteousness of God is demanded of us, but it is not something we can earn, but instead it is the good news that the righteousness of God is a gift to be freely imparted and received by trusting in Jesus Christ, who alone accomplished and possesses perfect righteousness, who is willing to give it to precisely unholy sinners. And it was through this that Luther saw the beautiful heart of God in his immense and baffling love for unholy sinners. And so Luther writes that upon understanding this and and receiving this gospel, He reflects on that conversion and says that here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. That is the joy of experiencing the grace of God in the gospel. You see, he had been crushed by the weight of sin and the weight of God's commandments that he could never fulfill that he could never bear. But in that moment, by true saving faith, he felt that weight lifted because for the first time he believed that Jesus had taken every ounce of that crushing weight upon his own shoulders on the cross. And this transformed Martin Luther. For the first time in his life, he loved God. He loved Christ. And like this demoniac who was saved by Jesus, Luther went all over proclaiming throughout Germany how much Jesus had done for him. You see, it was only then that his fear of God was purified and actually amplified because no longer was Walking in obedience, a matter of placating a merciless judge. But instead, he realized then that all of God's commandments 
was God lovingly protecting his children from the lies and deceit of sin which are meant to steal, kill, and destroy you. Only when Luther embraced the gospel did he come to the commands of scripture and heard not the seething threats of a tyrant, but he heard the precious voice of his heavenly father who loved him. And it's because he was compelled by love. Therefore, Luther lived the rest of his days joyfully desiring to obey the voice of the one he loved and the one who loved him. This is the manifestation of true godly fear. Fear God and obey His commandments, Ecclesiastes 12.13. Only the gospel can teach that to us and enable that in us. You see, church, it is my great burden that none of us would suffer joylessness in knowing Christ. Beware of ungodly fear creeping into your heart. And as soon as you notice it, quickly return to the gospel. Look in the mirror and preach to yourself the gospel and cling to its truth in faith. And oh, that we at NBC would fear God with the highest love and worship, trembling before the wonder of His grace, our hearts palpitating not in dread, but with affection. And our lips quivering, not in fear, but with thankfulness for how much He has done for us. And may God help us to fear Him rightly for our joy in Him and His glory in us. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank You for revealing the truth of your character and your heart and your person through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to cling to the gospel and all that this reveals to us and shows us of who you are so that by love and in love we would be faithful to walk according to your ways of righteousness, to your commandments. Lord, empower us to obedience compelling us with love. Help us to fix our gaze on Jesus and through that, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we have been called. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.